0: Hey there, and welcome to the Sponsor Talk Podcast, where we interview some of the leading minds in the world of sponsorship marketing and discover the various ways in how brands interact with properties within sports, arts, film, music, you name it. Today is actually our first episode, so we're pretty excited. Um, And we got a really special guest here, uh, Justine Fedak, who's a 27-year veteran in the banking industry, most recently their head of social media and sponsorship for BMO, And she's an upcoming author, which I just learned about, uh, for a book called Confessions of a Corporate Hippie. Um, She's also working on the Instant Impact Group, which we'll talk about as well. Uh, Justine, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I am so honored to be your first guest. I'm pretty uh, touched that you thought of me when you're launching something as important as talking about the power of sponsorship. And particularly for me, sponsorship really defined my career. Mm -hmm. I think it was a part of my career that... Allowed me to not only uh, meet and learn about marketing from a different perspective, mm-hmm. but to meet people in a place that they were extremely passionate. And the banking industry is known for a lot of things, but deep rooted passion is not typically Fair one of them. Yep. Uh, but the sponsorship part of the portfolio, I think, really enabled a lot of fantastic things to happen for not only my team, our employees, but our clients and the general marketplace that interacts with uh, teams and artistic groups that they love.
0: I love hearing that. Um, so let's get right into it. Like I feel like we should talk a little bit about your upbringing in Hamilton, where it led you to work eventually with BMO and how you got into the media relations side of the BMO business.
1: Sure. I mean it's um, it's a very circuitous story and I think when people have a very linear story, I find that fascinating. because mm-hmm. Very few people set out to do one thing and that's what happened. So Mm -hmm. uh, my life was uh, kind of a bit different in the sense that I grew up uh, in the 70s. So I'm almost 50 now, but I grew up in the 70s and my mother left my father. I was raised by just my dad, which was very unusual back then. Not so unusual today, but very unusual back then. Mm -hmm. And I grew up with a very different um, understanding of family dynamic. As a consequence, I think I was probably more open-minded to things and I went through life really with an open mind and exploring and asking a lot of questions and I think that's a sign of a good marketer if you ask a lot of questions and do a lot of listening. So as a kid, I think I did a lot of that. I went to school uh, at a small private school called Hillfield Strathallen College. My daughter now goes there, so second generation. Uh, Loved the school, fell in love with a guy at the school. Um, who, uh, we, when we went to university, I was at U of T, he was at Carleton. Uh, we were still totally together, planning our life together. My life was going to be, I was going to be a lawyer like my dad in Hamilton. And lo and behold, three weeks after he said, Hey, you're the one for me. And it was on my 21st birthday. He died in a car crash. So I say that and I kind of pause for a second because things that happened to us in our lives, uh, whether that's, you know, something that happens directly to you or to those around you really do change and affect some of our opportunities to select a particular career path. And for me, law school was just off the table. I just, I didn't want to do it anymore. I really had a, a change of heart and I actually got a job in a restaurant and I was a uh, cocktail waitressing. Mm-hmm. And I think that I was quite depressed and Luckily, my, uh, one of my best friend's fathers uh, worked for Bank of Montreal mm-hmm. and when he saw kind of where I was at in my mental health and the fact that I had not even stayed as the cocktail waitress and they had asked me to go in the back and count the money and set up the scheduling, he said, if you want to count money, why don't you just come to BMO? We've got money for you to count. Love it. Yeah. So like honestly, it was as random as that and I started as an admin assistant in media relations and I worked the media phones.
0: So did you ever think that you would have spent 27 years there? No.
1: <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even letting you finish what you're saying. <laughs> you know exactly Admi- where I'm going. No. <laughs> no, I I thought I would be there for 9 weeks and he actually said to me, "Why don't you just come and try this out?" and I really didn't have any direction. Mm-hmm. I did not know what I wanted to do anymore. I was very depressed, I was very despondent. What happened is I fell in love with the energy of the media communications marketing environment. And as soon as I started taking those phone calls and making, you know, lists of things that were had to be done and being part of meetings and seeing the energy of the teams of people that were leading so many fascinating projects and initiatives, Mm -hmm. I was sold. And this was at a time where women were breaking the glass ceiling and uh, Bank of Montreal actually had a a task force on that, a task force on Aboriginal people it was called. These are all things that are still topical today.
0: Totally.
2: And
1: I was the beneficiary of being a young woman joining a firm where women were breaking the glass ceiling. So I had a lot of role models, uh, women and men, that were taking... uh, sort of the the bull by the horns and trying to get in there and make things happen. So I think I fell in love with all of that energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The banking category I I have to be honest I was never in love with Mm -hmm. but I was in love with the company and the things that I saw that I could do and the vision of of, uh, BMO and every year I thought I might go and do something else Mm -hmm. and then I you did. So uh,
0: let's, let's talk a little bit about what you just talked about. So diversity and inclusion was something that BMO was obviously well known for mm-hmm. and also it, it rubbed off on you, right? So how did you take yeah. some of those um, things that you learned from BMO and kind of apply it to your mindset around diversity and inclusion now?
1: Yeah, I think that in the early days, I'm not sure that I really understood the need for that level of inclusion. And I, I think that is probably an issue that many people don't understand is if you believe yourself to be open and Mm -hmm. you think oh hey I don't see color that's actually a problem in and of itself yeah because you have to see color to understand and I've learned this from a lot of my friends that in Chicago um, in the black community black professionals that say no you have to see color and I think that what those task force and the experiences I had really helped me to see that there are biases to Mm -hmm. see that we all have work to do, to see how a diversified group of people, whether that at the time was just women and men. Mm -hmm. And there were initiatives at that time that were men and women as colleagues. So you actually had training to teach people, men and women, how to work together. Mm. Because women weren't as well known in the executive ranks and women weren't leading a lot of things. Now, fast forward almost 30 years later, that type of seminar would seem outrageous. Yeah, for sure. right? It would seem crazy. Mm-hmm. But at the time it was that level. Also at the time LGBTQ initiatives were very new. Uh, people were not bringing their partners and spouses to events. They were mm-hmm. not openly living uh, whatever it is that their their social and personal lives were. Although companies were saying, bring yourself to work, bring your authentic self to work. Mm -hmm. And I actually worked with a man that I had no idea he was gay and he died of AIDS. I did not know he had AIDS and, you know, he was very ill. And at the, at the funeral, I met his partner Hmm. and that really struck me. I was probably around 23 and it really struck me because I thought I really cared about this man and he was a wonderful mentor to me and I couldn't believe that I didn't know this about him. Now, I had grown up with a very different environment and my mother had lived in, in a community with a lot of very different people and so I had a very different expectation of inclusiveness.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But to imagine that at that time, these were things that we had to really, really work on and we still are today. So I became executive sponsor for LGBT in Canada and then when I was transferred uh, to the US, I, I did the same there. And these are groups now that are vibrant and leading lots of affinity groups, lots of resource groups. Mm -hmm. But in the early stages, I think it was impressed upon me that being an advocate and being an ally was really important in my career. So so
0: being involved in that regards, like – Did you find that outside of your nine to five with the work that you were doing with the bank were you getting more involved with the bank in some of those facets like whether it be LGBTQ or um, you know diversity inclusion just kind of focusing in on how do you take the bank to the next level there?
1: Always. So that's the thing is I'm often asked you know what do you think I should do as I'm starting up my career and building Mm -hmm. and I don't know that I actively um, pursued these things because I thought it was you know something that would build my career. Mm I pursue things and still am because I'm curious or because I'm passionate or because I feel that it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And as cliche as that may sound, when you do something because it's from the heart, and really I became friends with different people that eventually might confide something and I had my own insecurities and thought, hey, I want someone to help me work on this and I want to help this group do this and I became an ally, and eventually, mm-hmm. actually, I was recognized in Out on Bay Streets' uh, award for being an executive ally. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it really struck me that evening that first of all, to imagine that we're now recognizing people for doing the right, right thing, thing. Yeah. uh, I sort of had a mixed emotion. I'm like, wow, I'm really honored, and on the other hand, I'm thinking, wow,
0: shouldn't everybody be doing this, <laughs> right?
1: right? Like, really, um, you know, so. I think that I just, I I felt that always getting involved was a way to meet people, learn things, be part of something. And I like being part of things. Mm -hmm. So that environment, when you get involved, whatever Mm -hmm. that is, allows you to learn and allows you to be part of something. So I think in the early stages, I was trying to learn how to be part of a big company. And those were the ways in.
0: And absolutely. I feel like even experiences that I had throughout university, throughout my work career, I always look back at some experiences that I had getting involved in extracurricular activities um, and, and sometimes those are the, the things that actually leave the longest lasting impact on you. Totally. And uh, whether or not it's uh, something that you know, should be being done or it's something that you're taking an initiative and, and going further on, I feel like it impacts you in ways that work, career and then university might not be able to.
1: Yeah, and I think sometimes it's easy to stay on the sidelines and watch.
0: Totally, yeah. And it's
1: easy to stay on the sidelines and have commentary. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to get involved and run the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You might just get involved by attending. Mm -hmm. So to me, involvement on any level is uh, having a curiosity to get a better understanding. And in my case, often I would roll up my sleeves and get involved, but I would also encourage other people to come with me hey, you don't have to really do anything, but just come and be part of it. Or we're looking for more people to attend. Can you please come? So I think that just the idea of getting involved has always been something that uh, Bank of Montreal encouraged me to do early on, Mm -hmm. and I took up the opportunity.
0: Okay. Well, like let's continue on that path of getting involved and, and your involvement with BMO. So like, did you find that your career was developing over the 27, 28 years that you were there? in a linear path or was it something that you were exposed to a lot of different uh, fields and segments within, you know, you obviously started in media relations, but how did you end up as the head of of social and sponsorship for, you know, North America?
1: So I think that in the early stages, so maybe the first five years it was more linear. But also at that time, uh, I think corporations did have a more linear approach to career management. Okay. So the way in which I progressed, I was in media relations and then I became a sponsorship coordinator. Cool. So I was the person that, you know, packed the boxes and if if you're that person listening and you're packing the boxes, that's exactly how I started. Mm -hmm. And I actually really value that because I understood the mechanics behind what needed to happen for activations. I understood all of the work that has to happen to put an event together. Yeah. The crisis management aspect at the event. The importance of the exactness of lists. The importance of the accuracy of information. Mm-hmm. So I started in, in in sponsorships and then I was transferred to marketing and at that time we had a lot of packaged goods marketers coming into financial services. Cool. I had the benefit of some fabulous mentors uh, that came from other big brands and CPG type things and that was very helpful. And they really worked me hard. And as a consequence, I think that led me down a different path. And really I ended up out of the corporate marketing side into wealth marketing, which was another trajectory for me, simply because somebody was unwell for a period of time and I had to go and pick up those meetings. Mm -hmm. And then after I was in those meetings, I really didn't know what I was doing, but I asked a lot of questions and that business asked for me to continue to work with them. So a lot of times I would say in the beginning, I took different roles that allowed me to learn different things. I stayed in those roles uh, longer than what I think today people think makes sense. Totally, yep. Yeah. But I wanted to understand how and what and the cycle of mm-hmm. the work. And actually, our CEO um, that recently retired, Bill Down, was a big sponsor and mentor of mine. And at one point when I became very agitated that I didn't think I was getting you know, recognized enough and my title wasn't big enough and my job wasn't big enough. He said, listen, you need to show that your raw potential and what you've learned so far, maybe I was seven, eight years in, actually translates into consistency and continuity. We need to know that you know and see and you demonstrate repeatedly that you know what you're doing. And that might take a few more steps mm-hmm. of learning. In the times that I was in those steps, I thought I already knew everything. Like I really did. Which is something we can all relate to, I'm sure. Yeah. I thought I was like, what more do you want me to do? Right? Mm -hmm. And at one point they had eliminated three people's jobs into mine. And I'm like, (laughs) what? Like, okay. So I've assumed all these people's jobs. Mm -hmm. One was an executive and I wasn't executive yet. Two were directors and I'm some Mm -hmm. kind of senior manager. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm making up the titles, but you get the drift of it. Totally. And I was like, what? What more do I need to show? Mm -hmm. And I think as I look back, because that's a long time ago now, what I needed to show was a level of corporate maturity, not maturity in my presentation of myself, but corporate maturity that I had seen and experienced a number of the kinds of things that a person needs to be able to do in a very adept manner, almost a rote manner. So if I were to explain that, I'd say letting people go. Hiring people, giving tough feedback, Mm -hmm. restructuring teams, creating new job opportunities, mentoring, sponsoring, talent development, managing the business, managing multiple stakeholders. But doing it with a kind of fluidity and ease and not just doing it once.
0: It's going through cycles.
1: It's going through cycles. So I I Mm -hmm. get it now. At the time, I was full of venom and and hostility and wanted to leave, right? I'm I'm leaving. They don't appreciate (laughs) me here. I can do better. And the thing is, I ended up staying because I was offered another opportunity within it. Mm -hmm. And I started to understand also where my growth opportunities were. Mm -hmm. I mean, self-reflection from a career perspective. Uh, which is a bit of what my book will cover is very important because when you're a high performer and when you really care about what you're doing it's very easy to delude yourself like to get lost in your own ego and I definitely was very good at getting lost in my own ego mm-hmm. which probably helped me some of the time mm-hmm. but hurt me when I wasn't willing to see hey now I get it and the, the I get it now is once I had done all those things I had just explained to you two or three times, I learned something different in each of those rotations. Yeah. So then I was able to predict outcomes. I was able to anticipate what needed to be done. I was better able to prepare my teams mm-hmm. to anticipate. So it made me a better leader.
0: And I feel like there's a lot of takeaways there. So there's a situational understanding of going through those cycles and kind of learning by doing through a number of repetitions, mm-hmm. right? There's the corporate maturity aspect you touched on. And at the end of the day, it's a lot of it. You might have been prepared for, you felt you were prepared for, right? But maybe the opportunity wasn't there. But you know, you took every every chance that you got in front of you, and it taught you something new every time. Right. So there's there's a lot to absorb there, and I think that's something that probably all of us can relate to in our career. Um, but let's 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 go back to BMO for a second. So I think this is a sponsorship podcast. Yeah. Uh, we haven't touched sponsorship yet. But, and I love sponsorship. And, and you started us off by saying how much sponsorship has kind of revolved around your career and how it's allowed you to fall in love with marketing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so can we talk about you know, BMO's sponsorship strategy while you were there?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you know obviously you negotiated a lot of partnerships on behalf of BMO and with a greater team. Um, you know, can we talk about the strategy and, and why specifically you partnered with the teams that you did?
1: Yeah, I think in the early days, um, the the people that came before me recognized that sponsorship was a way of connecting Mm -hmm. the BMO brand to the passions of the communities in which BMO worked and lived. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was always at BMO, and it continues to be, a necessary connection between employees participating as well as the community being involved. And whether that's through uh, philanthropic style sponsorships mm-hmm. or big sports sponsorships or artistic or civic sponsorships, those elements of participation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the bank's uh, purpose is to boldly grow the good in work and in life. And I think even 25 years ago, while those words maybe weren't being used, mm-hmm. that was always the underpinning of the sponsorship was to place BMO's brand and its values where people were passionately involved. Mm -hmm. And so the early days, the kinds of things we did, if I go way back in time, and I don't know even who's going to remember this other than me, but the the show jumping around horses was something BMO was very involved in. And Ian Miller, who's a Canadian legend in show jumping and an Olympian, Mm -hmm. um, that was something that BMO was very involved in and very involved in the equestrian community. So you might say, well, that doesn't seem very relevant today. Yeah, that surprises me. Yep. But at that time, the strategy was to manage and and build advocacy within that community for all kinds of strategic reasons. Mm -hmm. So I think that BMO's strategy has always been and continues to evolve around one major premise, which is where are our clients and our prospective clients passionately living Mm -hmm. and working? And how do we intersect and be part of their lives Mm -hmm. in a way that is also permission-based? You don't want your bank showing up in the wrong way, in the wrong place.
0: Yeah. There's nothing that ticks off a lot of people, especially as fans and consumers, um, if a brand is kind of shoved down their throats in the wrong ways.
1: Exactly. And so sponsorship is a, um, it's a creative and a scientific form of marketing. Totally, I think it's probably one of the most misunderstood forms of marketing by many marketers uh, and many people who don't understand the power. Because now with digital marketing being so important, it's very difficult to quantify a lot of the emotional aspects of a sponsorship. Mm -hmm. So a sponsorship builds what I'd say is heart power. And when you're really passionate about something, it's very difficult to measure how passionate you are. Mm -hmm. But when I look back at even basketball in Canada and BMO's early involvement, Mm -hmm. when you see the growth of the sport, our brand at BMO grew with the sport. But you have to have a lot of faith in sponsorship because if you get involved in the early stages, it doesn't return in a quarter. It doesn't return in the first year. Uh, I think about BMO Field Mm -hmm. and at the time that we did the deal for BMO Field, That was a very unproven idea, soccer or football in Canada. That was like the long shot of all long shots. Mm -hmm. I remember going to places in Toronto and people teasing me and saying, oh, really, soccer? Like, you couldn't have found something better? And, oh, I guess you forgot what happened to the blizzard, or soccer's never going to make it, that's a dying sport. You know, this was the This This was was the the conversation at the time, yeah. 100%. And I remember also people saying, oh, what are you going to do when tumbleweeds roll down the center of BMO Field and nobody's (laughs) there?
0: Well, that's not an issue, right? Like (laughs) obviously over time, soccer became one of the fastest growing sports in Canada. So um, jokes on them.
1: Right. And the vision, you know, the thing is that the vision of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and guys like Dave Hopkinson Mm -hmm. and other guys that had the vision to say, you know what, if we invest in this now, this will lead us down the future path. And I think sponsorship is also about investing in something today that either grows with your brand or investing in something today that's already at its peak and growing more.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's, there's no wrong commitment. It just depends on what your brand is willing to partner with. And we were very, I think, progressive in many ways of being willing to partner with, with uh, newer ideas mm-hmm. and pioneering or, you know, participating when a team or a property wasn't at its peak Mm -hmm. and growing with the property.
0: So I feel like as brand marketers, there's a harsh reality that a lot of times uh, metrics are driving the sponsorships you invest in. So you talked about it being an emotional aspect. Was there anything that you looked for when you were evaluating the social media or the sponsorship performance? Like what was, what were the metrics that your team was using?
1: So actually I'll, I'll throw some uh, kudos out to Josh Epstein who's currently the head of sponsorships for BMO because he brought in a lot of thinking and, and worked with a sponsorship measurement company to develop an online measurement tool, Very an cool. actual okay. tool, evaluation tool that allows you to input a lot of your goals and it measures how you're performing. And how your portfolio is performing against each other too. Oh, cool. So okay. not necessarily how it's performing against market, but how it's performing vis-a-vis the dollar you spend across your entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. BMO has a very uh, deep portfolio, so not every single sponsorship is evaluated with the same criteria.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the team at BMO, and I mean they are an amazing group of people. These are expert sponsorship specialists from our most junior to, you know, right up to Josh and and, and others in the, in the company. Basically, every sponsorship was given its own specific strategic targets Mm -hmm. based on what the goals were from the business perspective and from the marketing perspective. In some cases, it might be business back revenue. How much revenue is this actually generating? So for something where we might have a branded debit card like the Chicago Bulls, Blackhawks, Milwaukee Bucks, those all have debit cards in the US. There were goals around revenue. There would, And those are hard dollar goals, those, are, those yeah. are hard dollar goals.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Also goals around maybe awareness, maybe consideration, maybe mm-hmm. visibility of some particular product that's embedded. But it's not, I think the important thing is it's not one measurement. Mm-hmm. So you can't say, oh, it's these three things and that's how we evaluate all of it. There are very different reasons to enter into different sponsorships. If your company's expanding into a new market, it may be 100% awareness and you might be valuing that and weighting that way up high. It could be something where you're actually now trying to convert. Mm-hmm. Now, in in services like accounting, financial services, etc., much harder to have a, a in-venue or online conversion that you can 100% attribute. Whatever say. But in other in other types of businesses, there are those attribution and consideration and conversion metrics that can be embedded. Mm-hmm. But because sponsorships are also so diverse in how you can execute them. So there's every kind of way. You look at client hospitality, many yep. of the things we did had deep client hospitality goals. Some of those things would be very much based on what relationship managers were hoping to uh, you know, do with the, with the hospitality. In some cases, it might be just to get a prospect to come and join them or get to know their client in a different light or surprise and delight. Mm-hmm. a client, or someone in the community. And so there are a number of different metrics that are are put in place. And I think it's important to have specific metrics against each property and mm-hmm. for each business line or product line that you're promoting.
0: So can we talk a little bit about regionality of the, some of the sponsorships mm-hmm. you worked on? So you know, Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, Toronto, there's, there's a few different regions that BMO seem to be focusing in on. Was there a strategic importance of the north uh, north kind of border between Canada and the U.S. there?
1: Yeah. I would say that Canada had a much more mature and robust sponsorship portfolio. And that thinking and knowledge base was then transferred to the U.S. Okay. And we started uh, sort of with formal sponsorships in 2006 in the U.S. Part of that is uh, at the time BMO had purchased Harris Bank in 1984. Uh, Harris Bank was owned by BMO all that time but ran in a separate brand. Uh, at a certain point as you probably already know it's BMO Harris Bank now mm-hmm. and the BMO brand is is you know very consistent across the globe but at that time it was about building both a a leadership position in the community and also contemporizing the Harris Bank brand which was a slightly older a little bit deemed to be maybe snooty or targeted to a much higher end demographic. It was more of a trust and savings bank in the US, okay. which is different, sort of like a high end private bank. Yep. And the bank was really ready and, and willing and wanting to diversify its portfolio. Mm-hmm. And so the partnership with the Chicago Bulls was really a combination. The Bulls were going through a reorganization. Jordan and Pippin had, had moved on. People were trying to understand who are these Chicago Bulls today. The players were relatively unknown compared to the champions that they had had. And so there was a crisis of confidence, not to mention the financial crisis that occurred between that Mm -hmm. 2008-2009 time frame. Mm -hmm. So that was the time that uh, BMO stepped in as Harris Bank and partnered with the Chicago Bulls to both give the bulls that stability and continuity and use of our distribution network at at BMO as well as allow BMO to really contemporize and kind of sexy up the brand and it worked.
0: Cool. Yeah <laughs> um, from a from a social perspective because this is this is something that just personally interests me. Um, you were the head of social, but also the head of sponsorship for mm-hmm. BMO when you were working there last. So, can you talk a little bit about how you've seen social evolve over time, and how also you've evaluated social and the interactions you've had with consumers and fans of the sports teams you were
1: investing in? So, I said at the be- beginning of the of the conversation that I'm turning fifty soon. So Mm -hmm. I am not a person that grew up using social. I'm a student of social. So again, uh, the two people at BMO that led social for my group, Mm -hmm. they really opened up my eyes to how incredibly powerful social in combination with sponsorships could be. And we were already doing things like Vine and, you know, um, Snap Stories and all kinds of I would say dynamic imagery being used that when it was first presented to me by the team, I mm-hmm. thought, who is watching this? Yeah. How is this ever going to turn into a measurable result? Mm-hmm. Now amazingly, what I'd say is in a five, six year period, that question mark I had turned into how can we activate more? How can we do more of this? Where should we be doing this? And what uh, drove
0: that? Like What, what changed that mindset?
1: I think that the, the measurement of being able to track and see the followership, and there's some, some people might question and say, well, that's just entertainment. Well, if you're not including your brand in part of that story, in part of that, which I'm just like making up this term dynamic imagery, if you're not in motion with that, then you're out. Mm-hmm. And so to some degree, I'd say what social has done for sponsorships is it's taken the experience of being there to the experience of being here. So now my phone can provide for me the same emotional content and connection or as close to it as being there. And when you think about just even this past weekend with Chicago All-Star, the NBA Mm All-Star, I mean I was there for much of it but I was also experiencing a lot of it through other people's social feeds. And that was as energetic, if not in some cases, it's more, more dynamic.
0: Energetic. 100%, yeah. Right?
1: I mean, because people are able to capture snippets and bits of things and amplify them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really a combination of amplification and deepening the relationship. Whether that's you know, YouTube or long-form LinkedIn, whatever those things are, we started to see that content needed to be shared across different platforms in different ways for different audiences and the sponsorship needed that to grow. And I
0: feel like there's a level of raw emotion and authenticity that you can see through certain social lenses that you wouldn't be able to see through television ads or different types of creative. So, Mm -hmm. you know, when you think about the player experience and you've also worked a lot with Hakeem Noah and his foundation and you're obviously very involved in there. Um, you know, there's certain things from an athletic perspective, um, for athletes that they can actually showcase through social that they can't showcase anywhere else and they can control that content.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, brand curation is a curious thing now because everybody has their own social that they curate. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, when I look at my, let's say LinkedIn, I still amplify things for BMO to the point where sometimes people contact me to ask information about BMO and I say, yes, let me put you in touch with the right person. But your personal channels are your own broadcast network. And so how you personally choose to amplify, as an employee, your company's relationship with various sponsored properties will also redefine or define the success of that property now. Because the corporate handle is only like a tiny bit interesting. Mm -hmm. When you think about somebody else's endorsement of an experience, that's what now creates conversion. Because if you're posting something Mm -hmm. and I'm saying, well, I know you and that's interesting or what a great experience. Mm -hmm. And I have a friend who's a broadcaster in Chicago and he's now a morning anchor but he used to be the sports broadcaster for a long time. His name's Ryan Baker and i loved his instagram feed of the whole weekend because he was at all these different things that i wasn't at this was for all star for all star cool. and i was seeing all kinds of things and then i saw he had the new jordan shoes that That's said right. chai yep and he he said where he got them did you pick up and, a pair no they were all sold out i did <laughs> okay. call for somebody that wanted them but they okay. that was very hard to get i think you have to line up all night for that kind of stuff but i found it fascinating as a marketer to sit back and look at that because you can experience whatever dimension of a sponsorship that you want based on how you curate your, your own feed. Yeah, 100%. Right? So I think we have to keep in mind too though that your personal brand is now commingled whether you like it or not with corporate brands. Mm-hmm. If you're endorsing something just as a consumer or if you work somewhere, I know some people are reluctant mm-hmm. to post, they say, well that's my personal brand. If you're working somewhere and you don't love that brand as a marketer enough to want to share something about it yeah I think that's an issue that's an issue to me
0: no I mean I 100% agree Um, from from that standpoint you talked about how you're a student of social and Mm -hmm. um, you know you're still learning as you go and you talked about the power of a personal brand why it's important to build one you know tell us about your personal brand what are you about what are you posting about on social you're very active on on certain networks but you know why is it that you're active on LinkedIn more than others, and like why it? am
1: I not on TikTok? Yeah, so why, I'm like, I mean, I'm like, fascinated by TikTok. So I, I, my daughter is <laughs> all over TikTok and doing all those crazy dances that I can't do. Yep, and I'm sure I'm on TikTok via Su- her, via her? Okay, yeah, via gotcha. like that I don't even know. But I think that there's also situationally appropriate reasons to use certain things, and just because something now has a cadence to it and a rhythm doesn't necessarily mean you or your brand belong there. Mm -hmm. So for me yes I'm probably most active on LinkedIn uh, simply because the things that I wish to share are around how I'm rebranding and creating my own brand which is I'm a corporate hippie yeah, and what that means and the reason that I find LinkedIn to be the right space for that content is that's a thought leadership space.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: It's a little less sensational. And it's an environment where this stage of who I am and where I'm at, it's an important place for me to share my thought leadership. And that audience is primed and ready to listen to that content. Whereas TikTok, I mean, I was fa- I'm was i fascinated by TikTok. So like four million views of how an orange can be pulverized. Right? So as yeah. a marketer, I'm like, I, I, I can't quite understand this. Why do you think that people want to watch Orange Is Being Paul Frees? Do you know?
0: I have no idea. I, I personally don't understand TikTok as a marketer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's an untouched platform in a lot of ways by brands so far because of the misunderstanding of how to use it and how to force you know certain messages and build emotion through it. Right. But there's certain people that are like Benny the Bull. Like mm-hmm. he's killing it on TikTok. Yeah, he's killing it. Um, but I personally I know stay Benny away the with. Bull. He's my friend. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I'm bull, hoping for episode two. Um, yeah, he think- could- could also do an appearance here
1: well well maybe he doesn't talk
0: that's okay we it's a podcast we don't need talk okay
1: that's fine. he has an assistant so maybe that they could maybe they could talk you know the, actually the raptor would probably come with him the two okay. of them that'd hey, be a listen, great interview for you
0: I I mean I don't even need to be here <laughs> I feel like they could interview each other <laughs> they could
1: actually that'd be a great podcast but all, all kidding aside like things like TikTok are fascinating because if a consumer consumes it there's yep. a marketplace yeah right so I think that it's supply and demand P- 4 million people watched how this orange was pulverized. It's unbelievable. Okay? It's unbelievable. Yeah. But I'm not going to judge it. And I think if people are listening that are skewing a little older and have been in the marketing sponsorship space longer than you know five years, mm-hmm. we have to be willing to be students of these things because mm-hmm. marketing is really about understanding how to encourage a consumer to shift their behavior toward a behavior you want them to have mm-hmm. which is usually purchasing right so if tiktok is actually now being monetized which again i don't 100% you know understand yeah. i think it is because yeah. i see job postings on glassdoor and on linkedin for jobs at tiktok that are about revenue generation that's right
0: partnership manager or, right. so, or business development. so there's
1: there's some monetization that we just don't totally you know we can't visualize we need to understand What is that person longing for that's being fulfilled Mm -hmm. by that content? And when you think about Instagram, you think about how people curate their brands. In a lot of cases it's criticized for being well it's fake and they only post these really great things that they're doing and you know my daughter will only post very few things and if people post too much that's offensive to their generation Mm -hmm. whereas I mean I would post anything yeah, and nobody cares but again the people that are consuming my content are consuming it in a way that's aligned to mine. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I'm a student of social, because you have to understand the medium just as much as the message and the content. You have to understand why you're on that platform. Twitter provides a different type of communication and currency than LinkedIn. Both are acceptable and good uses for corporate purposes, mm-hmm. and to amplify sponsorships, and to share content, but they're not the same.
0: True. Um, so if you're managing, like obviously you're doing something else, and we'll get into that right now, mm-hmm. um, but if you're managing a brand, let's say BMO. Yeah. Um, that's a good one. That's a good one. I feel like it's relative. Yeah. Um, would When you experience something like TikTok, and you see the amount of traffic and, and the engagement numbers that are going along with that platform, Um, do you kind of follow a wait and see approach and say, you know, we'll see how, uh, people are reacting to the platform, watch it grow, and then kind of start to decide if it makes sense for your strategy, or is it something that we're just going to test the waters a little bit and and see what happens?
1: Well, I mean, the current team that's there probably has an answer that's, you know, (laughs) a little bit bit more up to date than Mm -hmm. mine, but what I'll say is when Vine, which doesn't even exist now. Mm-hmm. When Vine was popular, but it feels like
0: TikTok. I feel like Vine and TikTok it's feel
1: like, very yeah, similar. TikTok's like the you know next generation Vine is what people are saying. But at, in the beginning, the team said, "Look, we want to do this Vine and partner with the Bulls and do these, and, cool. and it won an NBA acknowledgement award." Okay. The thing is, I think your brand may not have the permission to get that uh you know groovy, let's say, or you know. Kind of make something happen that is outside of the normal messaging. Yep. But if the sponsored property has the permission of the marketplace, then you can participate together. And that's sort of the way that BMO always has seen it is, hey, we have the permission if in partnership it still meets our brand's criteria and not to get too far out there just because that platform. Mm-hmm. Can push the envelope and, and be edgy. Being edgy isn't always appropriate. Like there's a lot of stuff on TikTok that doesn't make any sense. You see all these <laughs> all of it. Right. But I mean, <laughs> but there's stuff that people are watching. Yeah. And then there's stuff that people are just posting. It has like five views. Yeah. So just to be on something to be there isn't good enough. You have to have your strategic idea enhanced by what you're doing. So I would say you know, BMO has participated very successfully with Snapchat filters for our Magnificent Mile Lights Festival where we had, you know, millions of people using the Snapchat filter to celebrate their family being part of this lighting of the Magnificent Mile before the holidays. That's an appropriate use Mm -hmm. of a platform that fits with the genre of what you're doing. So I think there's lots of ways of using social media effectively, but you have to really understand why you're doing it, not just to be there.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think the last question I have before we, we get into what you're doing now is the Chicago market. So obviously BMO is very prevalent in Chicago, partnerships with the Blackhawks, the Bulls, um, the region in general, when you had the 200th anniversary of BMO, I think you set up the digital wishing fountain. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I forget where it was, but it was in the city of Chicago somewhere. And I think it was about 11 to 12 million dollars that BMO had committed to a lot of different Chicago um, initiatives that year. So is there something about the city of the Chicago that you know BMO strategizes around or prioritizes?
1: Well, so first of all, the um our, our CMO at the time, Connie Stefankovitz, was the one that really led all the work around mm-hmm. the fountains. And the fountain actually started here in Toronto, and then it made its way to Chicago. And so was that a test in Toronto or was that- No, uh, it was part of the 200 year I... celebration wow, is, okay. to, is to um, have the activation be part of the major communities that we uh, have grown in. Gotcha. And Chicago is, a, is our US headquarters. And so when BMO bought Harris Bank in 1984, that's, that's where the headquarters uh, are and, and were. Mm-hmm. And so as a consequence, the celebration of 200 years was about celebrating the communities and celebrating how um, builders in the communities had participated in, in BMO's history. And so the fountain was about making a wish for someone, about mm-hmm. wishing it forward. And I think that the magic of that is we got all of our partners involved. So I think that the event you're probably thinking of, which we had on uh, Michigan Avenue,
0: that's right. Yeah. we had,
1: um, i trying to think, we had a lot of different hockey players from the Blackhawks participating. Mm-hmm. I think Denise Savard and I were on stage together at one point. Cool. And it was all about wishing it forward and encouraging Chicagoans and the community to make a wish that we could grant. And so a lot of that money was granted in wishes and given to community programs and you know, initiatives that were brought forward. And that was our way of celebrating mm-hmm. the history of the company with the community.
0: And I love it because from a community engagement standpoint, you're getting people to really put forward their thoughts and ideas about what they want to see Chicago improve in and where they want initiatives to be supportive. So I, I love that campaign and, and to realize that also it started in Toronto is something meaningful to me as a mm-hmm. Toronto resident.
1: Yeah, and it was you know what, it was a really cool experience to be part of that because it took five years of planning to really execute what is this celebration about.
2: Mm-hmm. And the
1: thing at the time is our CEO Bill Down was absolutely, it was non-negotiable to him that it not be a love fest of BMO of itself. Yeah. That it really be about, and the challenge that we had as a marketing group is how do you make this about the community that has been part of Canada's First Bank's growth yeah. and has enabled the bank to thrive. And I think that wishing fountain uh, was a pretty amazing execution yeah. and nobody knew if it would work. I mean, we didn't know. Would anybody make a wish? But it was extremely successful and a really cool project to be part of. Lots of people were involved. It was a big exercise.
0: And I feel like that's what the authenticity behind the program was, was that it was community first. It wasn't Mm -hmm. look at us, we're BMO, we're doing this big thing. It is how do we support the communities that we care about? And I think that came across in a lot of the messaging and, and a lot of the activation. Um, material.
1: And you know you're hitting on something that I think is really important that often is talked about but is actually overlooked when you really get deeply into thinking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When you do something that is authentic to your brand and mm-hmm. you participate in a partnership and you express it in, in that way of authenticity or if you yourself really do show up as you, yep. things happen very seamlessly. When you try to be something you're not as a person or as a brand you have this incongruence and people pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So, in order for something to be trusted, it has to be real. And I think that's probably why that sometimes people don't see, hey, I don't think our sponsorship's working. Well, you know, you can't give yourself an edgy brand when you're not just because you partnered with something that's a little bit more progressive. So I think that I appreciate you acknowledging that because I do think that we hit the right chord because yeah. it was real to BMO. it was believable because it was true, right? So totally.
0: Uh, let's talk about what you're doing now. So you, we had a conversation prior to the podcast about instant impact and the work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, you know,
1: just tell us about it. So, what I'm doing now is I'm living the life of a corporate hippie. And so, what is that? It's basically being open to every possible opportunity that comes my way, whether it's motivational speaking, which is my passion, Mm -hmm. working on my book, marketing consulting. And lo and behold, the other thing that happened is Star Jones and I started a company called Instant Impact Group. And I'll explain to you, first of all, Star Jones is an awesome person. I am so lucky that she married a guy in Chicago, moved to Chicago. We met because I was in a, a production by the Black Ensemble Theater called Soul of a Powerful Woman and so was she. And we sat beside each other in the getting ready phase of, of putting on the performance and we became friends. And that was a number of years ago. As a consequence of becoming friends, mm-hmm. you know, we'd spend time together and we'd talk about sort of what we were planning to do in the future and we were both thinking about making career change and we were thinking, what does that mean? We got to talking one day about how impressed we were with how things had changed in the corporate world and how diversity and inclusion was top of mind. And we were talking about how great it is that everybody has a policy on diversity and inclusion. And and it's
0: something you, know, you touched upon at the earlier yeah. part of the podcast was that it didn't happen when you first start your career. It was right. something that was a lot rarer.
1: Right, and now, yeah. I mean, there's chief diversity officers and inclusion is talked about in all aspects. And then we actually started talking about the fact that what's the biggest issue that Mm -hmm. people complain about though? Like why isn't this working to the nth degree? And what we really came to understand is it's because people don't actually know how to interact and change their behavior or they don't know what behaviors they need to adopt that would signal and create change. And it's very hard to ask somebody a question. If you feel uncomfortable that is this sort of going a little too far into a place that's inappropriate Mm -hmm. so she and I were having really raw conversations with one another you know she's a a, a black woman I'm a white woman we started having conversations around what is it to be a black woman now the thing is I'll never know what it is to be a black woman Mm -hmm. but I can ask a lot of questions and we started talking about things like how black women are portrayed in the media or how a particular image that a company had that was, you know, all the talk at the time that it was inappropriately shot. Okay. That creatively yeah. they had not maintained the young woman's hair to a particular standard.
0: Which, if you didn't listen and, right. and kind of hear about, you would have you would have never thought about that. I would right. think. Right. Right.
1: Now I've come to understand that that can also be generational. Yeah. So older black women may find this picture to be more of an issue than younger black women who say, hey, that's how she is. Why should our hair be like white women? Mm -hmm. So there are all these things that are difficult for people. And what we did is we said, listen, let's start thinking about how could you just take some real dialogue, real facilitation, get underneath the covers and create a bit of curriculum to help guide those conversations for companies. Yeah. So what we did is we created the, um, what we call the three eyes: your instant impact intentions, which are outcomes after a variety of different ways we can facilitate uh, workshops. There's a number of different ways that we offer this service. Yep. And that allows a company to then be enabled to start to demonstrate some change very quickly. And these are not uh, earth shattering things, these are simple things like one of the groups we worked with said, you know what, we have this event where our, you know, CEO gets the group together and there's about 150 people and they're welcome to come to this sort of area that we have that they can congregate in, like a piazza kind of area, and we have drinks and appetizers and and a big screen and people are able to, you know, spend 15 to 20, maybe 30 minutes listening to current topical information and different leaders share information. And they said, you know what, we don't really get that great of a turnout all the time. Mm-hmm. And when, you know, we did it the very first one, but then it's really drifted off. But we, we get told the content's really good. So we started probing into, okay, well, why, you know, why would that be? Is it the time of day? Is it this? Is it that? And it turned out to be that somebody got onto, well, there's no seating. And somebody said, well, it's only 15 minutes mean, you don't need to sit down in 15 minutes. Well, I have multiple sclerosis. I can't stand for 15 minutes comfortably. I have to balance all my weight on my cane. Mm. Now I use a cane now, but years ago I didn't and I still had balance issues. So you don't know in a group of people, are some people pregnant? Is somebody have a heart condition? Is somebody having a cancer treatment? Somebody have some sort of chronic illness. Yeah. And so we said, hey, you know what, why don't you just try this? Mm -hmm. and put some seating in so have mandatory seating but what the three the three impact intentions were was establish seating yeah have leaders actually acknowledge that they're seating and why Mm -hmm. at at each event and the third part was have leaders sit because there's Mm -hmm. nothing worse than having a bunch of seats and all the senior leaders that people are looking up to or looking at are all standing standing yeah. right so we said those would be your three immediate impact intentions to signal that you're serious about inclusivity for that segment of your community Okay. and then the feedback we got was you know what it really helped and not even just for attendance but morale that wow that was really that really you know putting your mouth where where it should be and you're not just saying this stuff you're doing it i feel like
0: this whole conversation touches upon like a a huge part of your life so in 2001 you you talked about ms and and like you know, how that's impacted you, your thought process and the work you're doing with instant impact, but it didn't stop you at all from anything you were doing from the corporate world. But can you talk about, you know, how your outlet changed or your, your mindset changed? um, You know, when something like that does happen and and maybe it's an inspiration for a lot of people listening that everyone is going through something and uh, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to overcome something, but uh, how did you overcome that with your corporate life?
1: Yeah, you know what? I, I had a really hard time in the beginning, yeah. and so I didn't tell anybody I had MS. I lived with it very silently um, and in a very, I think, unproductive way looking back. I was afraid that people would think I wasn't capable anymore and that the work and bigger jobs would go to other people.
2: Yeah.
1: I was very fearful that um, I would just be seen as not the same person. And at one point I was ready to give up Mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, I don't think I can do this because I was really in a lot of pain. It was very hard to adjust. When you first get diagnosed with MS, the pain is just intolerable. I still have the same pain now, but I'm used to it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, you know, if something, if you leave an elastic band on your wrist Mm -hmm. and it hurts, you know, in the beginning, then after a while you just get used to it because it's consistent pain. So I had a hard time managing all the pain. And I actually went to our CEO and said, listen, I don't think I can do this anymore. I think I need to quit. And he said, you're not quitting. He said, you're the exact same person you were before you got this MS diagnosis. You just feel different. I love that. Yeah. And you know what? That stayed with me year after year because I did. I felt different. So therefore I thought my work product was different. Mm -hmm. And it just, it took me, and I, I mean without a word of a lie, it took me 10 years of hiding it. Very few people knew. And it wasn't until I had two back-to-back flare-ups and I was basically like my left leg did not operate properly. I had to use a cane. Yep. And I actually came out with MS um, at the Chicago Bulls Christmas Day game. My daughter was little in 2012 and she wanted to go to the game. And my husband said, come on, like, let's all go as a family. It's Christmas Day. We don't want to leave you at home. And I walked out on the court. And as you said, Joakim Noah's mom is my best friend. And that's how I know him so well. Okay. And I walked onto the court, center court for a picture, because that's something that they do. And Joakim saw me in the shoot around, and he came over to see how I was doing, because he knew, obviously, what was going on. Yep. A couple of the other players came over and said, hey, are you okay? What happened? And I was like, oh, well. And then I admitted to them, well, I have MS, and I've had this you know, bad run, and I'm really not feeling that great, but I'm here today. And you know, they're all hugging me. I'm sure the coach was like, "Please stop talking to the players." But we had this little moment, which I to this day is still extremely meaningful. And Joakim has been—I mean, his mom is my best friend—that so she's been a huge supporter of mine. But he has also been somebody I've admired because that guy never stops working. Mm-hmm. He never gives up. He is the hardest worker of anybody I know, and he pushes himself to the limit. All the time. And that was inspiring for me because I would never give up physically when I would watch him. Mm -hmm. And so then that day, um, Michael Reinsdorf, who's the president of the Bulls, Bulls, excuse me, (laughs) he's going to be like, what? (laughs) The president of the Bulls. He said to me, um, what happened? Did you have a car accident? What happened to you? This is a person I knew really well. And I said, actually, I have multiple sclerosis. And he was like, what? Like I've known you all this time and why didn't you tell me? Mm And you know what something in that night also made me realize by hiding it and lying to people Mm because that's what I was doing Mm -hmm. it was like a form of betrayal for people I was close to yeah because they were like well are you really like do I even know you that you would hide something this important so then I started opening up about it and the more I talked about it the easier it was for me to handle now the interesting thing is BMO made me an executive while I had MS they knew I had MS so it Mm -hmm. did not stop my career Mm -hmm. but I also kept showing up and I kept trying to show up and work hard it wasn't easy Mm -hmm. and I had a lot of self-doubt but I kept showing up and I think that's part of it when you're dealing with something whether it's an illness in your family elder care your own illness you still got to show up if you want to build that career yeah So,
0: and I feel like you touched upon this at the beginning it's like oftentimes when something is thrown upon you uh, like a situation like that uh, often you feel alone or instinct is to kind of just absorb it and, and not share with people but your approach has changed a lot since then and you you're very open about sharing about your experiences so you know what's why is it so important for you to share these things now versus your approach before
1: so I'm gonna say it in a really simple way it takes a lot of energy to hide something so if you have a big secret takes a lot of energy to hide it
2: mm-hmm. or
1: if there's something that you don't want people to find out about you, you have to work really hard to conceal it. I started to realize that I was using valuable energy to hide my MS and that actually by sharing it, I was getting so much support and so much feedback and so many people would say, oh, you have MS, yes, yeah, so is my mother or my aunt has MS, oh, my yeah. best friend or what's MS?" Oh, now you still do get the oh, I'm so sorry, mm-hmm. and then I would, you know, as I got older, I'd say, look, like, well, I'm not sorry. It's fine, mm-hmm. and so I had to adapt certain things. Like I couldn't run anymore, so you know, now I do Soul Cycle or Peloton. Like so, there's different things that you have to change. Yeah. So I think you have to be willing to also change certain things and accept what your limitations are. Mm-hmm. That's the hard part for people because somehow in society we're kind of coached like. You can be whatever you want and do whatever you want. Well, I'm not going to be an NBA player, a WNBA player, Mm -hmm. or an Olympian, right? So yeah, I can be whatever I want within the confines of what my body will permit me to do with MS. 100%. But your mind actually leads the most. So when I'm like right in the mind, then my MS is better. When I'm stressed out, my MS is worse.
0: So how did, uh, you know, obviously you're working at BMO the whole time that this, this was going on in in your, uh, in your life. So like, you know, did you find that there was a support system that you needed in terms of, you know, working from home, a little bit of balance um, with your corporate career? Sure.
1: Once I, once I disclosed, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And certainly I'd say there are people that at times you might have colleagues that at times are not as understanding and it's not because they're not supportive of what you're going through it's because they're on a deadline or they're panic-stricken or they feel they need you somewhere in person. But if you're comfortable uh, again showing up and delivering what it is you need to contribute in whatever way that you can do that people adjust. So I'm not going to say like oh every person it was like a big commune where everybody's like oh yeah sure I'm sure there were times where or physically I had to get good at saying I can't go to that building today for the meeting. I'm gonna yep. dial in because it just took up too much of my energy to move from this location to that location. Yeah. Right? So I mean, you have to be your own advocate. And that's the difficult part. Other people accept your confidence and other people will take advantage of your insecurity.
0: Totally. So I I, I know we've talked about so much today. I feel like there's a lot to absorb if you're a listener to the podcast. It's our first episode, so I don't know how many <laughs> listeners there are yet, but um, what I, I'm hoping to do as I continue this series moving forward is always leave people with a piece of advice from you um, that you learned throughout your career. So whether it be about you, know, you absorbing um, the obstacles that you had um, with your boyfriend at the time or with, with MS, um, you know, what is it that you would want people to, to hear you out on about advice that you have um, for anyone dealing with something like that?
1: Yeah, Super simple advice, one statement be in love with your life every single minute
0: easy enough to end that way thank you justine for coming on
1: thank you so much for having me as your first guest this Ah. is gonna be a great show
0: (laughs) okay (laughs) well thank you everyone for listening to the sponsor talk podcast um don't forget to follow us on instagram and twitter at sponsor talk and then we have our linkedin community as well at the sponsorship space so this has been a pleasure and uh, let's do it again sometime
1: soon thank you so much for having me